Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. A podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I am Amina Tussaud. And I'm Anne Friedman. Every other week, we'll be bringing you a special phone-a-friend episode between either Anne or me and one of our rad pals. Hey, Amina. This week, I talked to Virgie Tovar, who uh, is an activist, an author, generally fashionable and fabulous woman uh, who runs a campaign called Lose Hate, Not Wait. Um, which is, I think, an important early-in-the-year message when everyone is, like, weirdly dieting-obsessed. And she's just a general body positivity inspiration for ladies of all shapes and sizes. So I was super excited to talk to her about her own self-acceptance journey and to hear what she has to say to all of us who are still on that long road. Thank you so much for um, for being on the podcast. Amina and I are both huge admirers of your work. So this is exciting for me. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a little bit of an overview of the particular brand of activism that you devote yourself to and what you're about. Yeah, I have this ongoing kind of campaign called Lose Hate, Not Wait. That's like my hashtag. It kind of summarizes everything that I do. I primarily, in terms of activism, identify as a fat activist. I do a lot of work around fat discrimination, education, and body image. And I go all over the country and talk to universities and children and you know high school students um, and a lot of other kinds of people and do a lot of writing around this issue. Um, and I've been doing this for probably about, I think, like four years. I mean, it's interesting because you know, I, I was born and raised into a fat family. I was a fat baby. I was a fat kid. You know, there's just like some people just have a a body type that is not considered the ideal, right? Like, and fatness is not considered a beauty ideal or a health ideal in our current culture. And so my life has been and is continuing to be heavily shaped by being a fat person and a fat woman in particular in this culture. And so I started writing about what it was like being fat and like what it was like dating being fat and what it was like, you know, trying to find clothes and fixing clothes to suit my body and like all these kinds of things. And um, it really resonated with people. And then I sort of started to really talk about the political side of things. Like, I'm really interested in the history of, like, how we arrived at this moment culturally where diet culture and the war on obesity is, like, something that saturates every person's life. Like, it's inescapable. So I started to write about that, too. And so, yeah, it's just evolved over time to include all these different kinds of facets, primarily fat activism, body image, education, um, and working with people to really see that self-loathing or the ideology that I'm never good enough is something that we've been taught and that we don't have to live that life if we don't want to and we don't have to diet and and put our lives on hold indefinitely that we can live right now in this body on our terms. Did you always feel awesome in your fat body or was it was there a personal component to this journey as well? Yeah, no. I mean, the short answer is no. 
I, uh, when I was a little girl, I was, as I mentioned, born into a fat family. I was a fat baby, fat kid. There were a few years before, before about five or six years old, when I was definitely aware, like I remember being in preschool, I was like four and I was the biggest kid in the class. And I had this like cute boyfriend who was the littlest kid in the class and his name was Ray Ray. And, um, and like, I was deeply aware that I was bigger than him and, and other children. I was aware that I had a belly. I was aware that like I was jiggly and these things either had no meaning or they had positive meaning to me. This was a sort of pre-consciousness phase that I went through before I was educated in fat phobia, fat shaming and diet culture. Um, so I had this like beautiful period in the first few years of my life that I actually until recently had completely blocked out. Like I had totally blocked out the memories of just loving my body and like, and or feeling indifferent towards what it was doing and what it looked like. And like, there's this moment that I recently recalled in childhood where I would come home from school and I would take off all my clothes. I loved being naked. I would take off all my clothes in the bathroom. And there was this long hallway from the bathroom to the kitchen. And um, I would run down the hallway naked, you know, as like a four-year-old or whatever. And I would stop at the end of the hallway. And then I would stand there and I would jiggle like my whole body. And I remember the like intense pleasure of that feeling. I remember how much I loved doing it, how exciting, how interesting it felt to have all these like jiggly parts. And then of course my family thought it was adorable and cute. So that was like, it was like this beautiful kind of experience in, in childhood. And then at around age five, when I enter kindergarten, and this is kind of a primary school where it's K through six, all of a sudden my body is no longer acceptable. I'm a fat person. I'm a fat girl. That is the entirety of what I am. I'm a terrible person. I'm a bad person. I'm an ugly person. And like I begin to get this education in what it means to be a fat person in our culture. And, you know, it, it was very hard on me. I just felt like I was constantly paranoid about people saying things to me. You know, I, it was like every single day, at least once a day, usually a boy who was in my age group or a little bit older would tell me that I was fat. And it would just kind of, I mean, it's literally like, it, you know, emotionally, it's like you're constantly on, like on the, in the defense mode because you're preparing yourself for the emotional horror, just never feeling like I was allowed to exist. I was engaging in starvation behavior. I was engaging in obsessive exercising. And I thought this was all very positive uh, because I thought that I had to do whatever I had to do to be thin. And so by the time I'm 16 or 17 years old, I believe that I'm worthless. I believe that I'm the ugliest person on the earth. I really believe this. And this kind of set the stage for the ways in which I experienced sexual debut and romantic debut. So I knew that none of the, and this is ultimately like how the story, the, the turning point in the story in terms of my relationship to my body, because I felt so ashamed of myself and I felt so unattractive and the, the boys in my class or whatever did not express any romantic interest in me. I decided to take to like the internet and actually a, a an anonymous telephone personal service. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just like before the big AOL boom. 
and I was just like about to graduate from high school. And so I get on this like telephone personal service and I'm immediately like bombarded with men's attention. And it was like overwhelming and exciting and exhilarating and all these things. And, you know, I still kind of believe I was like, okay, well, once they see me though, they're never going to like me. Like they like me on the phone, but they're not going to like me in person. And what I found was that was not the case. I found that like dating and having relationships with men, which I was told that I was never going to be able to do as a fat person. I found that it was very easy. I had a lot of access to, you know, attention, romantic and sexual and otherwise. And it kind of blew my mind having like these fun romantic relationships with people who I was attracted to and stuff. I still continued to diet for years and years after that. I even like had a period where I gave myself scurvy. Um, like, oh my God. I mean, like, like a weird pirate sailor type. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like the kind you read about in, like eighth grade health class. Um, yeah. Turns out that if you starve yourself, you get no vitamin C, you're going to get scurvy. It's pretty inevitable. It doesn't take that long for it to set in. And it was like ridiculous. So like, here's the story. So I was like, okay, I was in college. I was a freshman. I hated my roommates. I had like five roommates um, and I hated them. And I was like, oh God, I have to get out of here. And it just so happened there was like a study abroad program that was like a short term, three month long study abroad program in Italy. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go to Italy. And so something overtook me, like the diet brain my diet mentality overtook me. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to use these three months to like radically alter my body and lose all the weight that I've always wanted to lose. Yeah. And so um, I was like, okay, well, I've only got three months and I've got like 80 pounds to lose. So I should probably do something a little bit drastic. I know starving myself. Um, And it just seemed like completely logical thinking in my mind at the time. So I'm telling all my friends that I'm going to starve myself. They're trying to tell me not to. I'm convinced that they're just jelly. Um, (laughs) Like not eating, like only eating like a spoonful or two of food a day. And then within, you know, two months of that, um, I start to lose equilibrium. Like I literally can't stand up for more than a few minutes because then I want to like fall over or throw up. It gets to a point where whenever I get up to like go to class or go do anything, I'm so exhausted that I would just sit down on a bench and I would fall asleep and I'd wake up at like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the middle of some small town in Italy in the dark, you know, on a bench. And, and in my mind at that time, I could not connect my starvation behavior to these outcomes. In my mind, like starving myself was a good thing. Starving myself was what I needed to do to be thin, which was the most important thing to me at that time. And I could not connect I'm not eating. My body is shutting down slowly, but surely complete disconnect. And now that I do work with women, this is very common. Like it's very common that women will engage in behavior like around food that leads to really negative health outcomes or leads to things like irritability, dizziness, lightheadedness, and they cannot in their minds connect. I'm not eating. And that's why my body is doing this thing. Um, so this is not uncommon anyway. So like even after this like horrific Italian, like awfulness that, that I experienced, <laughs> I still didn't stop dieting. Um, I continued for another few years. I was introduced to feminism around the same time, still didn't stop dieting. The jump from dieting to like never dieting again happened kind of slowly, but like it, it came around kind of logic. Like I'm a very analytical person. I like I have to be able to understand what's going on emotionally inside of me and I have to be able to like analyze it and kind of like map it. So 
as I was kind of, you know, maturing, coming of age, like I'm about 24, 25, I'm still dieting. I kind of have this realization where I'm like, right, so um, I hate dieting. This sucks. I want to eat cake. When can I eat some fucking cake? Um, and so I started, <laughs> I sat down and I was like, okay, when can you eat cake, Virgie? And I was like, a year from now? No. Two years from now? No. Five years from now? No. Ten years from now? No. Um, and I like went, I kept going like that until I hit the end of my life. And I realized that that was the, that was the answer. Like I had to commit to this, this life that I hated for the rest of my life because I was going to have to fight my natural fat body all of my life in order to keep it at a certain size. It was just heartbreaking in that moment to, to like think of myself as like an 80 year old woman who was refusing herself cake or perhaps eating cake for the first time in 50 years or whatever. It just stopped making sense slowly and then all at once, you know? Um, and so as I've kind of like made this journey starting out as like a four year old who was jiggling and loving, loving her body to like this self hating person who was dieting and starving herself to now where I'm just like, I'm never dieting again. It's been like a, a very long kind of slow process, but I think like what's so what's so interesting and like deep and intense and beautiful about it is that I've started to really be able to take a step back from the culture and see how my behavior was part of this big legacy of for women, for fat people, for people of color, for disabled people. Like this was all part of this bigger story. And as I've taken this step back, I've been able to kind of see like how there's these really intense elements in the culture that are like twilight zone levels of not okay. Um, <laughs> and, and diet culture is one of those. I think it's really interesting that one of your early um, and one maybe one of your few in your young life empowering experiences that had to do with the idea of yourself and how you saw yourself came from dating. Because I think especially and, and so interesting that it was also like, you know, this this idea of like a, a digitized or like virtual like introduction. Whereas now, I mean, I know you get a lot of letters about it. And I talk to lots of friends about the way online dating and the dating process in general can be really, really hard on people with fat bodies. Yeah. Yeah. If I were to go back in time, knowing what I know now to my 17 year old self, I know there was a lot of stuff that at this point in my life, I would not have dealt with. I mean, there were lots of weird attitudes and, you know, expressions of whatever. But at that time, I felt like I deserved that. I felt like I deserved criticism. I felt like I deserved to be like, you know, like, I, I mean, I was dating somebody, for example, I was in a long term relationship with somebody who consistently critiqued my body and told me how I could improve it, you know, from like my skin to like my belly, you know, he wow. would just he would give me advice on all kinds of things. And at the time, this was not a deal breaker to me. And like, I mean, I think it really has to do with context, right? Like, I was not in a point in my consciousness where I felt like I deserved to have this like, amazing, adoring experience with a partner. In my mind, I went from I am never going to be loved or desired 
to someone is loving and desiring me. And at that time, that was really radical. Certainly, the circumstances were really fraught. I think back on, again, like relationships I had at that time that I would not have at this time. But because of the the like the nature of the flip, like it was literally a 180 at that time. So you can imagine like the potential of of like shifting or changing or, or you know, the, the radical potential of something when you're coming from a place where you literally thought that thing didn't exist and now it does. And it's it just blew my mind. Yeah. And so, so tell me, like, when you, when you talk to women now, I know you do a lot of speaking. Do you see yourself as someone who is like trying to win them over or convince them of something? Are you like a guru who shows up when they're already on this path? Like, I, I don't, I would, I would love to hear more about that. <laughs> yeah. It's really funny. I always make jokes about being a guru. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm like a um, ENFJ, which is like, the Myers-Briggs of all dictators and gurus or something. Um, and so I'm just like, it's like my past. Uh, me, Malcolm X, and like Pol Pot. We share a birthday. Uh, it's weird. Anyway, so, um, so I don't know, like maybe a little bit. I think the way that I see my work, especially now more and more, I think there was a time when I was really proselytizing. I was really trying to convert people. And now I'm just kind of, I see myself as an educator who is offering an alternative. One of the coolest things about doing this work is like most people don't even know that they can stop dieting. Like the idea of me saying something like, did you know that you don't have to diet? It's like a truth bomb that they've just never even contemplated. That is like how intense the diet culture has on people. Like, like for example, uh, two weeks ago, I was giving a talk at this high school And um, I was talking about the journey, my journey from self-hatred to self-acceptance and self-love. And then one kid raises his hand and he's like, you know, uh, my family is really upfront about my my body and they let me know uh, when they feel like I'm looking unhealthy and there's a there's like a legacy of men dying really early in my family. And so like we're convinced that it has to do with weight. And so I think that self-hatred is a good thing. Um, And I was like, whoa, right? Like, like, I'm like taken aback for a moment because I've never heard anybody say that they love self-hatred and that it works for them. Like, this is so pointed. It's so on the nose, right? And, you know, of course, it's like a high school student. So he hasn't he hasn't learned how to like filter all this stuff out yet. So I take a moment and I'm like, you know what? Like, if if you feel and you and your family feel that self-hatred works for you, you should just you need you should do that then. Like I'm I'm literally just providing you with something that if you hit a wall with the self-hatred and it stops working for you, that you now know that there's some other way that you can live this life. And I think more and more it's like, I don't want to force a bunch of people who don't want to live a fat positive or diet free life to live that life because that's just like fascism, right? I don't want to really be a proponent of that. But I think uh, what's so powerful is like, when I show people the history of dieting, when I show the personal impacts it's had on my life, when they begin to resonate with those things, I think there is a transformation that happens for people. I think there is like a moment of pause and reflection. And that's a really intense, like really beautiful moment for me. Yeah, I love that idea of just kind of saying like, here, here is an alternative that the wider culture has not told you is an alternative, like is <laughs> did not put on the table for you. Yeah, exactly. I'm an avid reader of your Ask Virgie column. And I know that a lot of the questions you get, kind of like that high school student are maybe are maybe about the middle ground, which is sort of like, oh, how do I continue to love my fat body, but 
feel good about like holding myself to an exercise regime or listening to my doctor when my doctor tells me that I should lose a few pounds, but overall still loving my body or trying to not hate. Mm. I'm curious about those questions that are like, you know, yes, like maybe I'm not in the diet culture completely, but I also want to take into consideration these other sources or this other these other messages I get that don't seem hate-based, that seem based on my well-being. This, those, those are the questions when I read those where I'm like, how does she answer these? One of the things that I've really come to understand, especially recently, like I'm so in my like healing journey, my self-compassion, like reading self-help books about fear and love and like crying whenever I have a feeling moment, <laughs> right? Like in life, um, hopefully it will go on for a while. Um, but like what I've come to really understand is something that my one of my former partners really taught me. He's somebody who has really severe anxiety and he's been in group therapy and other kind of therapeutic settings for a long time. And um, one of the things that he learned in therapy, which he taught to me was the opposite of crazy is still crazy. And like, let me explain to you how this like relates to what you just asked me. Like diet culture is crazy. Asking people to conform to one beauty standard and one health standard, quote unquote, is nuts. There's so many kinds of bodies. There's so many reasons people have the body they have. And there's nothing wrong with anybody's body. So it's completely nuts that people are working their asses off to try and achieve one ideal. That's like nuts to me. On the other hand, to like completely abdicate anything we understand about the human need for vegetables or the human need for like going for a walk. You know what I mean? Like, that's also nuts. That's also bonkers. Like we cannot take the pendulum from one side all the way to the other because we're in the same place. What is really important when I'm talking to people who are like, okay, how do I, how do I live between two polar opposites of crazy? That's where people are negotiating. Most people are negotiating their lives. And so I think it's like really important. A, the autonomy, right? Like, is it working for you? Does this feel good? Does it feel like it's serving you? If it doesn't, what ideologically do you need to let go of to make this work? I think the second thing is having an incredible amount of compassion and patience for yourself. Like for somebody, and I think a lot of women relate to, and a lot of people, um, but I work primarily with women, but like a lot of women relate to policing themselves, surveilling, never feeling good enough, always feeling like they can do something to be more pretty or more whatever. And I think that this kind of mindset doesn't really work for people. And as they're, as they're leaving diet culture, that mindset doesn't go away, even though they've decided that dieting doesn't work for them. And so it's important to like, as the transition from self-loathing to like self-acceptance happens, it's very important to have patience and like allow yourself to make mistakes sometimes to learn from those things. The final thing I'm going to say about it is like, it's really important to me to have a measured response to what's happened and to not send somebody reeling into like another intensely prescriptive ideology. This is the dangerous place that uh, a lot of times political movements of all kinds tread. People have been traumatized by the culture and they react by isolating and creating a very prescriptive ideology for the people who are in that group. And I, I relate to that. I was there for a long time. I was a very militant, separatist-oriented person. I just, it stopped working for me. It stopped serving me. I felt policed. I felt surveilled. Like when I give people advice or ask people, answer people's questions, I'm coming from that place of like, I've seen both sides, both polar opposites. Um, neither one is sustainable in my mind. Neither one works. And so we have to like figure out what's here in the middle ground while like really honoring what we need and what we're learning from just like making mistakes and living our lives. You're very open about 
your your own story and like the ways you negotiate these issues are you how do you do it when you're like well like maybe i didn't handle that the way i would advise someone else to handle it are you do you try to be transparent about those moments do you talk about the best self that you wish you had been I don't know. Maybe, I, don't, I don't mean to like place you in a in a guru role that you're not in, except by your Myers Briggs thing. But but I'm I'm curious about that. Like you know, as as you said, like your own whole process is evolving too. I would say that I'm fairly transparent. Um, I think like there are moments where, um, like for example, I do a ton of writing, and sometimes I know what I have to do is to limit my writing to let's say 30 30 minutes to an hour because I have like five other articles I have to write this week. And of course, when something like when you limit yourself to like 45 minutes of writing, um, like a 800 word piece or whatever, there's going to be moments where you didn't think through every single word of that piece or you could phrase something a little bit more clearly or you could have taken more of a clear stance on something. And then people kind of let you know that that's what's happening. And it's difficult, right? Because like, because my work is so deeply personal, it sometimes feels extremely personal when someone is critiquing my work. Um, and it feels like sometimes it even feels like this almost like betrayal. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm doing all this. I'm being so vulnerable. I'm being, I'm working so hard to show compassion and to like show my process and share that with people. And, you know, and somebody was mean to me, right? Um, it's like, it's really, it's hard to <laughs> take a step back and be like, it's okay that that person is having a feeling and it's okay that it's happening publicly. I think that what I love about the notion of like having a brand, you know, and I, I think of myself as kind of a brand, like, uh, you know, I'm a writer and also an activist. What's exciting to me about that is like, if you're following me, if you're following my work, if you like my work, you're following me and the dynamic nature of a human. You're following me as I go from like the, on this journey, right? And I think this is true of anybody. Like if you, if you love a writer or you love a public figure of any kind, what's exciting about it is watching them change, is watching the way that their engagement with, with the issues and with more people shifts who they are in this world and what they write and how they write or how they do whatever their craft is. What's been most astounding to me in terms of my personal transformation is how intensely people's engagement with my work has changed me. And I think that um, more and more, the more I work with people, the more compassion I just automatically begin to manifest. Like it just like, it's just so clear to me, like as I begin to know people and work with people intensely over like periods of a month or a weekend or whatever, I begin to understand the incredibly complex nuance of their lives, the anxiety they feel about approval, they, the anxiety they feel about making the wrong decision. And it's like, it's deeply personal to me. It's not a theoretical person who's, you know, remotely somewhere and I don't really care about them and I'm not invested in them. I feel invested in the people I work with. And the more people I work with, the more gray life becomes. And like, I think it's the gray where we see evolution, where we see compassion, where we see love. I am transparent about the dynamics of my life. Like I'm like literally writing a a weird experimental novel on a blog right now. And it's just like so personal. Like I'm just sharing so much of the stuff that I'm actually extremely vulnerable about around my family, around my body, around like mental health, around all these kinds of things. I want people to, to see that. Like it's important for me to, to, for, to go through that journey somewhat publicly. It feels right for me. It feels cathartic for me. And I don't know how, I don't know if that'll be true forever. I really don't. Um, but right now it works. 
Yeah, I mean, I know that writing is sort of a primary mode of expression for you. And it's like the way that um, I interact with a lot of your work. But you also just sort of in your physicality and your sense of style, I feel are kind of political slash like expressing something through that as well. And so talk talk about that a little bit, like your 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 fashion and style and other ways of um, of being an awesome active person on this issue. There's like two parts to the fashion. Like on the one hand, I love wearing quirky, weird stuff. Like I love bright colors. I love loud prints. And I've always been drawn to eccentricity. Like I'm just that person. I'm just kind of being myself. And the culture politicizes my behavior. Because as a fat woman, I'm not supposed to wear bright colors or loud prints or huge jewelry or like bright pink lipstick. Um, But because I just want to do those things, um, the culture kind of it like creates and imposes meaning upon that. So that's like, that's part one. Part two is like, I think there's absolutely a narrative of for me, like visibility and performance to be completely honest. Like I grew up in, in a household where I was the hero child. I was the performer. I was the one who uh, made everybody happy. Like my mother is very transparent about the fact that she had me to make people happy. People were sad. And then she decided to have a baby because babies make people happy. And she, so she's very clear about like my, my, my purpose, like it, like bringing me into this world. And so I think who I am, like who I was born into this world to sort of become plays a big role kind of in that like eccentric performer style that I have in my wardrobe. Like, yes, it absolutely gives me joy to be performative and and like engage in costumery. Um, it, it just, it's exciting. It's like, it's healing for so long. I wasn't allowed. I didn't feel like I was allowed to wear the clothes I wanted and I couldn't find clothes that fit me throughout like most of my early adolescence. And it was t- it was awful. Like, you know, it was, it was awful constantly wearing like black, a black top with black pants and black shoes every day. Um, and so putting together an outfit becomes like this way in which I can channel like that creative energy that's kind of built up and create something really special and beautiful. The other thing that I really like about the fashion is like, it not only kind of broadcasts that I'm like a person who wants visibility and expects to be seen and like, I think it also invites people in, which I think is something I've I've been drawn. Like I, I'm somebody who thrives off of connection, um, and it's almost like an outfit that's like loud is an invitation for other people to engage with me in this kind of like unusually intimate way. Like women, strangers, especially women, talk to me all the time because of what I'm wearing, and it, there's something like really beautiful about that moment of like another woman seeing you recognizing you from like the last time she saw you. Like I just was at a store and this woman was like, you come in here a lot. You always have these great outfits on. And it's just kind of like this moment of like this humanity that we share. Like, and and there's almost kind of, I mean, in my mind, there's something kind of like feminist about it. Like there's just like this kind of visibility that they're recognizing and that I'm, that I'm kind of receiving. Um, And it becomes an opportunity to like, compliment them and like and see them so there's like so much complexity of the whole thing but yeah it's absolutely political and deeply connected to like who I am and who I was kind of like who I was in childhood and and all the things right (laughs) yeah oh man and do you um I mean it sounds like that has been a healing and empowering and otherwise awesome thing that you now put your time and energy into is there is there something else that you would say or, or maybe a couple of other things that that like feed you the same way or that like hit on all these levels? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, 
like on some level, I think I have that relationship with food. Like I can't believe how delicious food is. Like every day I'm like, my mind is utterly blown. (laughs) I like how amazing food. I'm like, Oh my God, you guys, have you tried this thing? It's called food. Um, and, and I think like, especially coming out of like hating food for so long. I mean, I thought food was the enemy. I hated food. Food would talk to me. Like it was just nuts, right? Like, I mean, I had this really, really fraught relationship to food for a really long time. And my anxiety around food would lead to these like long bouts of nausea, like years. I I, I went years being nauseous because like of how anxious I was around food and what it would do to me and how it would make me fat or whatever. And so now that I've kind of restored this relationship to food, I have this very like, I mean, and and if you kind of follow my social media, you will see like how much I love food. Like I'm like, I'm photographing food. Like the other day I took a picture of like, I I went and got coffee and there's a, there's like this cafe down the street from me and they have this, this special thing where it's like, they make the bread there and they have this like raw cheddar and they put butter on the bread and it's raw cheddar and like bacon right? And that's like, that's the thing. And then I stacked the, ch- the cheddars and the bacons. And like the sun was coming down on this like globule of bacon fat in this beautiful, perfect, like poetic way. And I sort of took a picture of it. And I was like, yes, this and I like and, and kind of I even was like waxing poetic about it on Instagram. I was like, Oh my god, this globule of fat, the sun glinting off the globule of fat says to me, the universe is speaking to me through this fat and it's saying, All the beauty of the world is at your fingertips. Um and sort of like so I think like, yeah, food has that thing. <laughs> like I have that <laughs> food. It's performative. It's something that I get to like relate to people over and it's like deeply pleasurable and something I can like put all of my energy into. And that also has this kind of element of like a restorative relationship that was once really awful and sad and now is like beautiful and just pure and amazing <laughs> oh my god and so it's funny I, I i know i told you that i wanted to ask about this as well but um for people who who are listening to this and are sort of like well you know i i feel like i don't identify with like younger virgie who is in that really that really bad place but i'm thinking of a friend that i have or someone who i would like to support with with the full knowledge that you know I'm not going to evangelize or I'm not you know um, I'm I'm I am I can't bring someone along to where they might not want to go or be ready to go. How do you be a friend to people who are in sort of not the great place that they could be? What's hard is that sometimes people are in a place and they're not ready to hear a thing. Like I think about myself and the the interventions my friends tried to to provide for me and just like the love for me that they had. And how I just was so angry at them for it. I remember even in college, the first time I ever heard about fat activism, I was probably 21 years old. Um, I was not ready to hear the message. I remember going to, it was like a poetry reading. And there was a fat girl who was, who was reading a poem about her fat body and having sex with her partner. And she was like going to really graphic details about like her roles and like her stretch marks and stuff and stuff that now I would be totally all about. But at the time I was like so embarrassed. I was so angry at her for like exposing my secret, like the secret of my fatness or whatever to the whole room, even if they're not ready to exactly go for it, to kind of be that support system to like, when I think about my own life, when somebody says to you, I'm thinking about not eating for three months, that you're that person who's like, 
that's probably maybe not the best idea. Like you really matter. You're important. Maybe you shouldn't do that thing. Maybe you don't want to pass out on a park bench in Italy. (laughs) Exactly. No. And I mean, like, I think what's, what's so interesting is like, you know, that moment didn't hit me at that moment, right? Like when, when my friends were trying to intervene, it didn't hit me at that time, but I know that they have this aggregate effect on me over time. I think the other thing that's important to check in with how you're talking. One of the things that's most common when I'm working with women, their biggest burden to bear is actually uh, their coworkers. It's like women who are like, I've been able to let go of friends who criticize my body or I've been able to let go of like that magazine that makes me feel like shit or I've stopped watching Sex in the City reruns. Um, you know, the coworkers kind of remain. And I think like, I think that this sort of speaks to the ways in which we are unconsciously reconfirming diet culture all the time. When you talk about food being good or bad, when you talk about how much you need to go to the gym, they're so embedded into our language, especially if you're a woman. I think it's really, really important to like take a moment, even if you can just take two or three days or a week where you're kind of really just checking in when those things are coming out of your mouth, when you're having those thoughts. Sometimes people want to give my book like Hot and Heavy to somebody who's not ready to like be told that they're a fat person. And I can imagine how traumatizing it is. So I'm like, no, that's probably not a good idea. Um, For people who like who are ready and who are listening to you and are like nodding. <laughs> do they do you have like follow up reading suggestions or like, oh, my God, don't watch that Sex in the City rerun. Watch this show. You know, one of my favorite pieces of advice and like one of one of the first I do this uh, program called Babe Camp. And the first exercise we do together, the first like assignment I give them is do a body image audit. And that essentially means like keeping a journal for anywhere between three and seven days. And you write down every time you have a negative thought about your body, and then you write down what triggered the thought. And then when you're done with that, like three to seven day period, you go through and you look at the parts. what on this list can I eradicate immediately? And like, so for example, really common things, a magazine, like you know, like Cosmo, you need to really cancel that subscription um, or like a certain <laughs> show that you watch. And then when you're done kind of going through and eradicating the easy to eradicate things, then you look at the stuff that remains and then you have to learn how to manage it. So for example, uh, let's say like you have a parent or a family member, they really matter to you, but they say really fucked up things that like hurt your feelings. And so what you begin to do is say, okay, I'm going to dedicate half the time that I had dedicated to that person previously for the next three to six months. And then when that period ends, check in with yourself, see how you're feeling. And if you're feeling better, then cut it back another 50%. So for example, like if you talk to that person once a day, every day, uh, cut it in half to three days. If you talk to them for an hour, talk to them instead for half an hour. So it's like you begin to learn to kind of how to manage the elements in your life that are really causing these really intense feelings of negativity. But like, I mean, in my opinion, that's like a fantastic exercise for anybody who's like ready to eradicate some part of their life that isn't working for them or learning how to manage it. But in terms of follow up reading, there's so there's so much like there's a book that just came out called um, Things No One Will Tell Fat Girls that like my friend and militant baker wrote um hot and heavy is my book hot and heavy fierce fat girls on life love and fashion um is fantastic because it's an anthology and it's 31 women writing about why they decided to stop dieting there's so many there's so many places to look and i think for people who are really interested in the 
the health aspect of things, like really rethinking the medical establishment's stance on fatness, a really good place to start is to just Google the term health at every size. There are books and articles and websites dedicated to like rethinking data and rethinking like our cultural attitudes towards health. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Virgie. This has been awesome. Of course. Thank you. Emoji siren for people in Los Angeles. Air horn. Air horn. We are doing an event with Rebecca Traster, who has been one of our most beloved podcast guests so far. Yes, so Rebecca Traster. Oh, this is going to be major. Yeah, she has a new book coming out called All the Single Ladies, which is about essentially the like cultural and political importance of single women in America. And we're going to talk about it. AKA us, uh, if that's not incentive enough to come, I need everybody to know that we are prominently featured in this book. So if you want to find out embarrassing things, like, you know, like, AKA how I lost my virginity or how we, like, our friendship has progressed, <laughs> these are all things that you should come to this event for. This is, this is an incredible selling, selling event where, um, I feel like, I feel really comfortable monetizing our friendship for this. I won't even lie. Like, I'm, I'm like, yes, put our, put our friendship out there. Let's have the event. I, I back this book so hard. This book honestly like contains the origin story exclusive. <laughs> Call your girlfriend exclusive. Um, and also just Rebecca is the smartest person thinking about how personal and political issues intersect for women in America. And I'm, I cannot wait to read a version of this story that is aware that not only white women have friendships and not only rich women have friendships. And I'm just so excited. Also just like an exploration of like what it means to be an unmarried woman in modern times and how it's actually not as modern of a construct as you think. Rebecca is like the smartest writing woman in the whole land right now. So buy the book and come join us in LA. It's March 7th at the Downtown Independent. Um, you can buy tickets at allthecygladies.eventbrite.com or you can follow a link from our website callyourgirlfriend.com. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. Download our show on the Acast app or on iTunes, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at callyrgf or email us callyrgf at gmail.com. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. This podcast is produced by Gina Delbeck. See you in Los Angeles. Oh my God, see you in Los Angeles.